0: Section 107 of complete original short stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 107. The Spasm. The hotel guests slowly entered the dining room and took their places. The waiters did not hurry themselves in order to give the latecomers a chance and thus avoid the trouble of bringing in the dishes a second time. The old bathers, the habitués, whose season was almost over, glanced, gazed toward the door whenever it opened, to see what new faces might appear. This is the principal distraction of watering places. People look forward to the dinner hour in order to inspect each day's new arrivals, to find out who they are, what they do, and what they think. We always have a vague desire to meet pleasant people, to make agreeable acquaintances, perhaps to meet with a love adventure. In this life of elbowings, unknown strangers assume an extreme importance. Curiosity is aroused, sympathy is ready to exhibit itself, and sociability is the order of the day. We cherish antipathies for a week and friendships for a month. We see people with different eyes when we view them through the medium of acquaintanceship at watering places. We discover in men suddenly, after an hour's chat, in the evening after dinner, under the trees in the park where the healing spring bubbles up, a high intelligence and astonishing merits, and a month afterward we have completely forgotten these new friends, who were so fascinating when we first met them. Permanent and serious ties are also formed here sooner than anywhere else. People see each other every day they become acquainted very quickly and their affection is tinged with the sweetness and unrestraint of long-standing intimacies we cherish in after years the dear and tender memories of those first hours of friendship the memory of those first conversations in which a soul was unveiled of those first glances which interrogate and respond to questions and secret thoughts which the mouth has not yet uttered the memory of that first cordial confidence the memory of that delightful sensation of opening our hearts to those who seem to open theirs to us in return And the melancholy of watering-places, the monotony of days that are all alike, proves hourly an incentive to this heart expansion. Well, this evening, as on every other evening, we awaited the appearance of strange faces. Only two appeared, but they were very remarkable, a man and a woman, father and daughter. They immediately reminded me of some of Edgar Poe's characters, and yet there was about them a charm, the charm associated with misfortune. I looked upon them as the victims of fate. The man was very tall and thin, rather stooped, with perfectly white hair, too white for his comparatively youthful physiognomy, and there was in his bearing and in his person that austerity peculiar to Protestants. The daughter, who was probably twenty-four or twenty-five, was small in stature, and was also very thin, very pale, and she had the air of one who needs worn out with utter lassitude. We meet people like this from time to time, who seem too weak for the tasks and needs of daily life, too weak to move about, to walk, to do all that we do every day. She was rather pretty, with a transparent spiritual beauty, and she ate with extreme slowness, as if she were almost incapable of moving her arms. It must have been she, assuredly, who had come to take the waters. They sat facing me on the opposite side of the table, and I at once noticed that the father had a very singular nervous twitching. Every time he wanted to reach an object, his hand described a sort of zigzag before it succeeded in reaching what it was in search of, and after a little while this movement annoyed me so that I turned aside my head in order not to see it. I noticed, too, that the young girl, during meals, wore a glove on her left hand after dinner i went for a stroll in the park of the bathing establishment this led toward the little auvergne station of chateau guyon hidden in a gorge at the foot of the high mountain from which flowed so many boiling springs arising from the deep bed of extinct volcanoes over yonder above our heads the domes of extinct craters lifted their ragged peaks above the rest in the long mountain chain for chateau guyon is situated at the entrance to the land of mountain domes beyond it stretches out the region of peaks and farther on the region of precipitous summits the Puy de Dôme is the highest of the domes, the peak of saint is the loftiest of the peaks, and Cantal is the most precipitous of these mountain heights. It was a very warm evening, and I was walking up and down a shady path, listening to the opening strains of the casino band, which was playing on an elevation overlooking the park, and I saw the father and the daughter advancing slowly in my direction. I bowed as one bows to one's hotel companions at a watering place, and the man, coming to a sudden halt, said to me, Could you not, monsieur, tell us of a nice walk to take? short pretty and not steep and pardon my troubling you i offered to show them the way toward the valley through which the little river flowed a deep valley forming a gorge between two tall craggy wooded slopes they gladly accepted my offer and we talked naturally about the virtue of the waters oh he said my daughter has a strange malady the seed of which is unknown she suffers from incomprehensible nervous attacks at one time the doctors think she has an attack of heart disease at another time they imagine it is some affection of the liver and at another they declare to be a disease of the spine. Today this protean malady that assumes a thousand forms and a thousand modes of attack is attributed to the stomach, which is the great cauldron and regulator of the body. This is why we have come here. For my part, I am rather inclined to think it is the nerves. In any case, it is very sad. Immediately the remembrance of the violent spasmodic movement of his hand came back to my mind, and I asked him, But is this not the result of heredity? Are not your own nerves somewhat affected? He replied calmly, Mine? Oh, no, my nerves have always been very steady. Then suddenly, after a pause, he went on. Ah, you are alluding to the jerking movement of my hand every time I try to reach for anything. This arises from a terrible experience which I had. Just imagine, this daughter of mine was actually buried alive. I could only utter, ah, so great were my astonishment and emotion. He continued. Here is the story. It is simple. Juliet had been subject for some time to serious attacks of the heart. We believed that she had a disease of that organ, and we were prepared for the worst. One day she was carried in the house, cold, lifeless, dead. She had fallen down unconscious in the garden. The doctor certified that life was extinct. I watched by her side for a day and two nights. I laid her with my own hands in the coffin, which I accompanied to the cemetery, where she was deposited in the family vault. It is situated in the very heart of Lorraine. I wished to have her interred with her jewels, bracelets, necklaces, rings, all presents which she had received from me, and wearing her first ball dress. You may easily imagine my state of mind when I re-entered our home. She was the only one I had, for my wife had been dead for many years. I found my way to my own apartment in a half-distracted condition, utterly exhausted, and sank into my easy chair, without the capacity to think or the strength to move. I was nothing better now than a suffering, vibrating machine, a human being who had, as it were, been flayed alive. My soul was like an open wound. My old valet, Prosper, who had assisted me in placing Juliet in her coffin, and aided me in preparing her for her last sleep, entered the room noiselessly, and asked, Does Monsieur want anything? I merely shook my head in reply. Monsieur is wrong, he urged. He will injure his health. Would Monsieur like me to put him to bed? I answered, No, let me alone, and he left the room. I know not how many hours slipped away. Oh, what a night, what a night. It was cold. My fire had died out in the huge grate, and the wind, the winter wind an icy wind, a winter hurricane, blew with a regular, sinister noise against the windows. How many hours slipped away? There I was without sleeping, powerless, crushed, my eyes wide open, my legs stretched out, my body limp, inanimate, and my mind torpid with despair. Suddenly the great doorbell, the great bell of the vestibule, rang out. I started so that my chair cracked under me. The solemn, ponderous sound vibrated through the empty country house as through a vault. I turned round to see what the hour was by the clock—it was just two in the morning. Who could be coming at such an hour? And abruptly the bell rang again twice. The servants, without a doubt, were afraid to get up. I took a wax candle and descended the stairs. I was on the point of asking, who is there? Then I felt ashamed of my weakness, and I slowly drew back the heavy bolts. My heart was throbbing wildly. I was frightened. I opened the door brusquely, and in the darkness I distinguished a white figure, standing erect, something that resembled an apparition. I recoiled, petrified with horror, faltering, Who who, who are you? A voice replied, It is I, father. It was my daughter. I really thought I must be mad, and I retreated backward before this advancing specter. I kept moving away, making a sign with my hand, as if to drive the phantom away, that gesture which you have noticed, that gesture which has remained with me ever since. Do not be afraid, papa, said the apparition. I was not dead. Somebody tried to steal my rings and cut one of my fingers. The blood began to flow, and that restored me to life. And in fact, I could see that her hand was covered with blood. I fell on my knees, choking with sobs and with a rattling in my throat. Then, when I had somewhat collected my thoughts, though I was still so bewildered that I scarcely realized the awesome happiness that had befallen me, I made her go up to my room and sit down in my easy chair. Then I rang excitedly for Prosper to get him to rekindle the fire and to bring some wine, and to summon assistance. The man entered, stared at my daughter— opened his mouth with a gasp of alarm and stupefaction, and then fell back dead. It was he who had opened the vault, who had mutilated and then abandoned my daughter, for he could not efface the traces of the theft. He had not even taken the trouble to put back the coffin into its place, feeling sure, besides, that he would not be suspected by me, as I trusted him absolutely. You see, monsieur, that we are very unfortunate people. He was silent. The night had fallen, casting its shadows over the desolate, mournful vale, and a sort of mysterious fear possessed me at finding myself by the side of these strange beings, of this young girl who had come back from the tomb, and this father with his uncanny spasm. I found it impossible to make any comment on this dreadful story. I only murmured, what a horrible thing. Then, after a minute's silence, I added, let us go indoors. I think it is growing cool. And we made our way back into the hotel. End of section 107, recording by Tatiana Chichella, Columbus, Ohio.